The promises of Christ are glorious. In 1956, there was a Time magazine article. And it reported that from the school teacher Everett Storms, who upon his 27th reading of the Bible, he counted 7,487 promises of God to man. In our scripture meditation today from John chapter 11, I don't know if you noticed, but it actually begins with a promise from Jesus Christ to the two sisters in verse 3. And I encourage you to keep a Bible open as we go through this passage together. So in verse 3 it says, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And Jesus said, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus sends the messenger, the sisters had sent a messenger... And the messenger is given this promise and the messenger is sent back that this illness is not to death. Glorious promise. Pour the bubbly. (laughs) Jesus loves Lazarus and Mary and, and Martha. Of course this would be his response. But after the promise is declared, tumult arises. It gets more confusing. Look at verse 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? Wait a second. When someone that you love is ill and they're experiencing illness, what do you do? You go right to them. You don't wait. You go immediately. But Jesus doesn't do this. And that raises some confusion. There's also with this promise a confusing timeline and you can spend some time trying to reconstruct exactly what happened the messenger was sent Jesus was in a remote location where John the Baptist had been baptizing we don't know exactly where that was the messenger went gave the message Jesus made the promise and then he delayed two days and then the scripture says he traveled some unknown time and when he had arrived Lazarus had already been dead for four days Now, commentators aren't sure where that unremote location is, uh, but certain commentators estimate that he was from between two and three and a half days away, the length of travel. And if you do the math and lay out the timeline, it's likely, not certain, but it's likely that the promise was delivered to the sisters post-mortem. That is, at least a day after Lazarus had already died. So imagine, you send the messengers to Jesus, you're waiting, and as you're waiting for the message from Jesus to come back, your brother dies. And he's in the tomb for at least a day. And then the messenger comes back, and he says, Jesus says, this illness is not to death. Wow. Now you're being confronted with something terribly confusing. The circumstances don't align with the promise. And oftentimes, with the promises of God, there is significant delay. But this reveals a pattern that is in Scripture, and Jesus actually refers to it. It's in his own life, but it's also in verse 25 and 26, where Jesus said to her, to Martha, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now look at the words, there's a pattern here. It begins with a kind of promise, believing in the promisor and his promises. But then something happens, the promises are undermined. It says, though he die. So there is some kind of death, there is some kind of obstruction to the promise that takes place, but then the promise is fulfilled. Yet shall he live and he shall never die. So there's this spiritual pattern that we have even taking place within the story of Lazarus. The promise is declared by Christ, but then the promise is delayed before the promise is delivered. And I want to spend some time reflecting on some of the challenges that take place when the promise defies our circumstances and when the promise is delayed. So we begin with one challenge, which is whether one should start believing at all. Imagine you're, someone comes up to you and hands you a check. The check has your name on it. You don't know who the person is. And it's made out, oh, let's say for $1 million. Now, if someone did that for you and they gave you a check for $1 million, you don't have any clue who this person is, what are you going to think? You're going to think, that's a scam. Check's no good. I don't know who it is. It can't possibly be good. And I'm not going to go to the bank and cash the check because then I'm, there won't be sufficient funds and I'm going to end up paying a, you know, a $10 bank, banking fee. So you question it. You don't act on it. But I wonder, would you throw the check away before at least spending some time trying to figure out and investigating who this person might be and whether there's any chance on whether the check is actually good? Well, in Jesus' own day, this sort of dynamic was actually taking place. Jesus was doing things and he was making promises, but there was skepticism. Uh, there was questions over, over the authenticity of who Jesus was. You can see this in verse 37. Some of the Jews said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's a fair question. And let's face it, Jesus is a confusing figure for any of us as we read the Gospels and we consider his claims. He loves in this passage. He delays. He weeps, but he does not act. If he loves, why does he not show up for Lazarus in the first place? And I think these sorts of questions reside within our own doubts, doubting about Jesus. You know, he's just a scam with false promises. The bank account doesn't really exist. This is what the great psychiatrist Sigmund Freud contended in his book, The Future of an Illusion. Freud wrote, religion is a system of wishful illusions, together with a disavowal of reality, such as we find nowhere else but in a state of blissful, hallucinatory confusion. Religion's 11th commandment, he wrote, is thou shalt not question. Freud is basically saying, listen, the the check is bogus. It's worthless. Get rid of it. It's just childhood stories, not worth your time or effort. But of course, let's pay attention that Freud is actually just making a claim, a claim that he cannot prove. And he's also, he uses the word religion. But there are different religions and they have different claims. There are different checks, so to speak. And 
it requires us to test and evaluate each one on their own claims, not just putting them all in a single bucket. And it seems to me that Freud's description of what religion is does not match, even remotely, what we see in the evidence in this text. Consider these, that Freud says that faith is wishful illusion. Uh, but is that what we see here? Well, consider in, in John 11, many misunderstand Jesus. Some reject Jesus. Jesus purposely delays, which raise questions about his love. He's greatly troubled. He weeps. Jesus is not presented as a wishful illusion. He's presented in this scripture in surprising and complex ways. Or Freud says faith is a disavowal of reality. But consider even in our own text how the disciples and the one telling the story is presented in very negative terms. Repeatedly, the disciples and Martha do not understand Jesus. It happens multiple times in John 11. The disciples show themselves to be selfish. They're risk averse. Even though Jesus makes this promise about Lazarus, they don't want to go to Bethany because it's going to require some of the, potentially their own skin. In verse 16, Thomas expresses what I think is cynicism. It's not a faith-filled comment. Now, if you are trying to persuade someone of something that's not true, and yet you're expressing all of these ways in which you yourself are not trustworthy, does that work? But that's exactly what's taking place in this text. The storytellers, the ones who are telling the story of Jesus, give reasons to not believe them. Why would they do that unless the story were actually true? Or consider Freud's comment about this 11th commandment, thou shalt not question. That does not happen in this text. No, not at all. It's actually just the reverse. In verse 26, Jesus says to Martha, do you believe this? And we see this regularly, consistently within Jesus and his appeals to us. He invites. He does not coerce. He never manipulates. It's an invitation into his life. It's never forced on you. There's no, there's a welcoming of question, not thou shalt not. So the text I'm suggesting to you bear marks of authenticity that should make you wonder, well, maybe the check actually is good. There are real historical components that are present there that are difficult to explain unless this is really exactly what happened. Now taking a step to believe in Jesus, it feels risky. But let's be clear, it is not as some skeptics would say, throwing yourself off a cliff into the dark. That's not the faith of the Bible and the faith that Jesus invites us into. It's more like, faith is more like slowly sitting in a chair. And you begin to experience it as you sit in it, it holding you up. That's what faith is more like. And as you sit in it, you begin to realize that the expression of faith in Jesus opens up a relationship with him. It's not about dogma. It's not about commandments. It's about a relationship with the living God. And if this is something that you have been considering or wondering about, my invitation to you is to pray. 
to invite Jesus into a relationship with you. And you will be amazed that the living God will respond. Many of us have experienced it over and over. That it's not just a, an empty promise. But there is a promisor behind it who invites you and asks you to take, to take a step of faith. Well, once we do take that step of faith, it gets more challenging in ways. Because there's another challenge I want to suggest to you when the promise is delayed. And it's the promise of whether, it's the question of whether to hang on for more. When the promise is delayed, should I hang on for more? Now for Martha, the delayed promise stirred doubt and for her to settle for less. Let me take you through the experience of, of Martha. Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she, uh, she went and she met him and she said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now let's be clear, Martha has faith. It's a real living faith in Jesus. But there is doubt. And there is an, an ease to misinterpret the promises of God. And I think our, the misinterpretation of God's promises can kind of go two different ways. There's what we, make, what we might call the realist error. In which you intellectualize the promises. Turning it merely into doctrine. Although doctrine is of course very important. But by focusing on the doctrine and the ideas it becomes a safeguard from you from actually having to trust in it, to trust in him, and to lean on the promises and to take risks that the gospel often demands. There's the realist error, but then there's also what we may call the romantic error. The romantic error in which you end up imputing upon the promises that God has given something from yourself. In other words, you end up hearing in the promises something that you want to hear, but it's not in the promise itself. I can think of my aunt uh, who died of breast cancer. A religious leader went up to my aunt and told her that she would be physically healed. And she wasn't. And it, but it, in the meantime, it stirred a lot of false hope within her. Now, there are certain promises of God that we can be utterly certain. The promise of salvation. The promise of a transformed life in which the Holy Spirit pours out virtue and, and his fruits. And we can lean on that heavily and trust. But then there are other kinds of, of promises. And there's no general promise in regards to healing. It does not, in regards to physical healing. There's no general promise in scripture. It's not just have enough faith and you'll be healed. No, that's not how it works. Now the Holy Spirit does at times provide promises to individuals about healing. And I think when an individual receives that kind of promise, you can trust it. You can lean into it. But then also you want to invite the faith community around you to pray with you and in it and for it. But as well as to discern whether you're making that up or you're imputing something there that wasn't really there or if it really is. Well, Martha was not a romantic. Martha was a realist. She took the promise of Jesus in, verses, in verse 4 and she intellectualized it. And she did this, I think, in order to mask her faith. In verse 23 and verse 24, Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. And I think he said this to, to test her. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. 
Now, when did, uh, when did Jesus actually say, uh, well, back up, in verse 4, did he ever talk about resurrection and the promise? And the answer is no. It's never there. He brings up resurrection and, and Mary, or Martha immediately goes into it and she equates the original promise that Jesus gives through the messenger in verse 4 to now this word that Jesus gives about the resurrection. And, and she says, yes, I believe in end time resurrection. And of course the scriptures teach an end time resurrection. We read about it in Ezekiel 37, ultimately fulfilled, an end time resurrection. It's in Daniel 12 verse 2 and John chapter 5, Jesus teaches it in verses 28 and 29, and this general resurrection in which all the dead, righteous and righteous, will be raised and then stand in the judgment. And the, those in Christ will be given eternal life and those outside of Christ will receive the second death. And Jesus is pressing Martha because she's already intellectualized it and he knows it. And so he brings up the resurrection. And, but then he, he pushes her and in verse 25, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. This I am statement, it's the seventh and final I am statement in the Gospel of John. It's the most glorious of the I am statements. Jesus is saying here that the resurrection, it's not a dogma or a doctrine. It's not, it's not an event in the future. The resurrection is a living being whose resurrection power pulsates through his being and the events and the ideas flow from the person himself. She doesn't quite understand what he's saying. So Jesus presses Martha again in verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now when did Jesus make that promise? That you would see the glory of God? But it doesn't happen in their, in their initial encounter when Martha goes out to meet him. He never mentions anything about glory. He talks about resurrection. That's why I suggest he was actually testing her to see if she listened to the original promise that had been delivered through the messenger. You have to go back to verse 4. In the original promise, that's when the glory is actually mentioned. He says that the Son of God, in the verse 4, may be glorified. And all of, the, all of the hints of what Jesus in, is intending is here, right in that, right in those words. He says, may be glorified. Now in the Greek mood of that verb, it's called the subjunctive. It's not will be glorified, that would be future tense, that would be absolutely guaranteed. He says, may be glorified, it's very, spe it's very specific in the Greek. And the subjunctive suggests conditionality. There's something conditional upon the promise, which would be belief. So if she had listened to the promise, she would have heard that Christ may be glorified, not will be glorified. If it had been will be glorified, then it would have been referring to the general resurrection. But that's not what he said. That it's conditional means it can't refer to the general resurrection. It's referring to Lazarus. And what Jesus intends to do with Lazarus. And of course, Mary and Martha received the promise after Lazarus was dead. So it's not conditional on Lazarus's faith. It's conditional on Mary and I think particularly Martha's 
faith? Will she, will they believe the promise as it had been originally given? And Martha still has this doubt hidden below the surface. And you see it in verse 38 and 39. Jesus goes to the tomb and he says, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he has been dead for four days. She doesn't get what Jesus is about to do. She still doesn't see it. She's actually accepted it. She's accepted the death of Lazarus. But at the cost of believing the promise. And so it seems to me that the, the, there is a stink that she's worried about. A stink. But the real stink is in her own heart. And Jesus is beginning to expose that she has not heard or received or she's really doubting the promise and she's intellectualized it to, to justify it, to rationalize what has been said, to make sense of it all. But Jesus wants her to believe. She's settling for less, but Christ wants her to hang on for more. And I think we can be like Martha, can we not? In which we settle for less because we have uncertainty and doubt about the promises that have been given. I know some of you who are followers of Jesus, but there is a besetting sin that remains in your life. And you've tried to get rid of it, but it's still there. It's kind of like the stink. It's behind the stone. You just don't want to think about it. And if you don't think about it, then maybe you can make sense of it all. But Jesus, his promise is take away the stone. He wants to and has the power through his spirit and through the means of grace given to us in the church to deal with any besetting sin. But you've got to press in and lean into the promise. Some of you, many of us, have unsaved family members. And doubt has set in and we've stopped praying for them. And the promise that Jesus gives is ask anything in my name. And so we need to go back to Christ and lay hold of the promises, claiming them on behalf of our child or our parent or our sister or whoever it might be that doesn't know him yet. And you need to lean in with prayer, praying for that person each and every day. Maybe you gave up some time ago, but you need to come back. Don't let the doubt stay in the tomb. Open the tomb and let Christ and his promises work. Some have been said to go. You've heard the Spirit say, you're going to go, or you're going to do. And there's been this long delay about going or doing. But remember that the promise, the delayed promise, is in order to prepare. It prepares the servant to, to go and to do. Do you believe this? Maybe today, as you're listening to me, you're in the midst of the biggest trial of your life. I can think of at least two congregants this week retching in the bathroom, dealing with terrible illness. The promise of Christ is true for you. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And you need to lay claim to that promise that no matter what physical difficulty you might be facing, no matter how hard it might be and feel, you claim the promise. And he'll give you the strength to endure and to be shaped 
and made better, more full of holiness and love if you would lay into the promise. Don't let initial delay keep you from holding out for the mother load. Go back to the check. When God gives you a check, what should you do? Well, faith is you sign your name to it. You give your signature, and then you go to the bank. Charles Spurgeon, who wrote this wonderful devotional called, and this is where this illustration of the check comes from, it's called the checkbook of the bank of faith being precious promises. And Spurgeon says, you must plead it by prayer, the promise. You must expect it to be fulfilled. Well, you go to the bank with your check, and you give it to the teller, and the teller then pushes the check back. And you say, is the check no good? And the teller says, no, the check's good. Are there insufficient funds in the bank? No. No, the, the money's there. Then what gives? Well, it, it's the date, you see. You're, you're, you're too early. You have to come back at the, at the right time. Well, what's the date? It's an invisible link. Take the check back. I'm, I can't tell you. Well, when you have a check that God has given, what do you do? You go back to the bank. If I gave you a million dollars, you knew the check was good. You didn't know when. It might be 10 years before the check might be come through. But would I go back every day for a million dollars? I think I would. I bet you would too if you knew the check was going to be good. But we have so much more in Jesus Christ and the promises that have been given. There are infinitely more. You just don't know the date. You got to go back, plead the promises, wait on him, look to him, plead. You're standing in front of a wall. And you cannot scale the wall. You plead the promises. You pray with earnestness. You don't give up. And at the appointed time, the wall will crack. At the appointed time, a bird will pick you up and bring you over. We don't know how the Lord will do it. But you wait on him. You, pr you pray because you've been given a promise that is utterly good. The promise to be free. The promise to be sent. The promise to be heard on behalf of your unsaved Christian friends. Promise to give strength. Well, there's a third challenge in our text. It's whether to be consoled by his love. Whether to be consoled by his love. We see this in Sister Mary. The delayed promise of Christ broke her heart. And it threatened to swallow her up in grief. Look at verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, Martha went out and met him. But a little interesting detail. But Mary remained seated in the house. She knew that Jesus had come. But there was some kind of reluctance in her. Now, Sometimes when we experience profound loss, it can be disabling. It can be prolonged and overwhelming and, and can really destabilize your life. And if that's you today, you want to reach out for help. There are people that can help you walk through a prolonged sorts of grief. But it's also the case in, the spiritual, in a spiritual way in which when we experience loss and that suffering, we begin to have a, a separation from God. We, we feel like, where are you? 
And underneath the grief and the sadness lies anger. How dare he not do what he said I thought he said he would do? You feel abandoned. You're alone. How can he say that he loves me and allow this to happen? And the grief separates you from God. That is always the risk in loss. But rather than allow grief to swallow her, Mary, she chose the better path, which is to be consoled by his grace. In verse 28, it says, Martha went and called her sister Mary, saying in private to her, the teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And I wonder if you're hearing my words, whether he's calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Verse 32, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Both Mary and Martha were saying the, were saying the same thing, feeling the same thing, but ex- responding in different ways. And she was weeping, which is this loud, painful sobbing. And Mary sets our, the example for us to follow. In the pain and the loss... We go to him. In the delay of the promise, we go to him. We bring our tears, our sadness, our rage, our fear, our confusion. You go to the feet of Christ and you keep on going, pouring out the tears. He can take it all. It's an old rugged cross that can take whatever you can want to put on it. You release the pain on him. And as you release the pain, the promise will come. We begin to realize first... ...as one does this. That the tears that have been flowing from you... ...in that loss and in that suffering... ...are in fact... ...a portion, a small portion... ...of the sadness that God himself has... ...over that evil and suffering... ...that has been unleashed upon your life. God never abandoned you. He's right there flowing in the very tears. I've experienced that... Personally, myself. The promises are true. Their promises are true not because you plead with tears. Not because you have great faith. The promises are ultimately true and can be counted on. Because of his great love. And his great glory. You see, it's Christ's love in verses 5 and 6. Which caused him to delay He intended it for a reason. It's love that in verse 38 brings him to a place of, the word in the English is trouble. But it's actually in the Greek, it's a word of anger. He's irate. Sometimes this word refers to the snort of the war horse. You see, when, when he felt this anger, Jesus, when he felt the anger, he was angry not at Mary or Martha. He was angry at death. And he said, that's enough. I've had it. I'm going to do something now. And not only did he have that anger, but he wept. Jesus wept. Not likely over the death of Lazarus, who he was going to momentarily raise. But over the sorrow of Mary and those that were with her. And that led him, as it should us, to pray. And he prayed in verses 41 and and 42. And it was that prayer that unleashed the promise. And just like for us, it's prayer that unleashes the promises of God. Lazarus, come forth. 
promise was declared. The promise was delayed. But nevertheless, brothers and sisters, the promise is delivered. It's delivered. That's the spiritual pattern with this loving delay that does challenge, there's no doubt about it, whether to take the first step to believe or whether to hang on for more or whether to be consoled by his love. But the promise is true if you would lean into it. Believe. In the year 2000, I had been part, back then, part of a medical ministry, still a part of the medical ministry here in Boston. And several people had received a promise from God that there was a certain home that was to serve as the center or the hub of medical ministry in Boston. The home had been vacant for six years. And there was an old lady, her name was Miss Kelly, Miss Kelly Farquharson, who owned the home. And some had received the promise, it was not me, but that God intended to give this home over to begin a Christian community and a center for ministry in Boston for, for medicine. Uh, my wife Tracy back then, she was, was a medical student, she tells me that she was on, I didn't, we didn't even know each other then, but she was on the front stairs of this home praying over it. And she kind of thought it was interesting to even try to, to pray over this home, never realizing that she would be used by God in order to purchase it. We prayed and we prayed as a community for some time, uh, but the home uh, was not available. It was not for sale. Miss Kelly had raised her family there for 40 years and she vacated the home and moved in with her daughter up at the top of Mission Hill. The home is down at the bottom of Mission Hill because her husband grew sick. And so she had to move um, out of the house. Um, and she wasn't going to let this house go. It was too important. Investors offered her money, a lot of money for it, but she had no interest. We had prayed and we prayed, but then we eventually we gave up, thinking, well, maybe we misunderstood. Well, then came about March, and my mother said to me, Michael, you guys were praying about that house. What happened? And I prayed about it. The next morning, it was a Monday morning, I remember it well, I woke up and I knew I needed to go. I had never met Miss Kelly. Other people had talked to her, not myself. And I knocked on her doors about 11 in the morning on Monday, March of 2001. And she opened the door and uh, she was kind of a smaller lady and I said, hello, my, my name is uh, Michael. I'm a pastor doing medical ministry in, in, in Boston. And, uh, I understand you have a home uh, down at the bottom of Mission Hill, right across the street from Harvard Medical School. And we're doing a ministry for doctors and nurses and other healthcare uh, clinicians and scientists. And is there any chance that you would be willing to talk about selling your home for this ministry? Well, Miss Kelly, she, she was kind of an interesting person. She first said, do you have a gun behind you? And uh, Mission Hill, especially at that time, was a pretty dangerous area. I said, no, no, look, I don't have any gun. Uh, and then she said, why don't you come in? And I sat at her table with her, told her more about the story, what we believed God to be doing, didn't know real, really what she believed or what her faith was. She listened to me for a while, and then she said something to me that I'll never forget. She said... 
my husband died two years ago today. And, and today, for the first time, I decided to open all the condolence letters and cards that I had received. And it, just before you rang the doorbell, I was just thinking to myself, maybe it's time to let that house go. And here you are. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. It is interesting. Two months later, Tracy and I were able to buy that home. And it has been part of the medical ministry uh, ever since. The promise was given. The promise was declared. And if you lean into it, the promise will come. And it's all of its fulfillment. Will you believe this?